When you start to actively go out and help build people up and build their confidence, they flourish and they then contribute in a whole new way. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Gabriella Schuster, a visionary and mission-focused executive on the leading edge of tech-enabled business innovation. As a fierce advocate for DEI, she is a founding sponsor of Women in Cloud. She's also a TEDx speaker and author of an ebook and training on allies, a program on how to build allies within your organization. Gabriella, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, happy to have you. So you are not the typical guest that I have on my show because you're not, you know, you're not uh, building a building a company. You're you're a sole practitioner. Um, but there's so many interesting things that you're doing that I think would be really beneficial for my audience to hear about. So you spent the majority of your career, I think just short of 26 years at Microsoft, uh, left there in September of 2021, you retired. Tell me a little bit about your journey prior to joining Microsoft and what had you join them so many years ago, almost 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, so um, I... I got to start from back, back from the beginning. So um, when I was a junior in college, um, I Once was upon a time, <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. I was studying um, genetic engineering, and um, at that time, my father had a major life crisis where um, he was let go from a role that he'd had for twenty-seven years, and um, he felt lost, utterly lost, like totally lost his identity through that process. And it struck me that I needed to build my career in a way that didn't land me in that same situation. And, um, and as a result, what I wanted to do was to be more of a generalist and to be, um, always kind of keeping myself up to date, being a continuous learner right? And not get out of date or out of touch. Um, so I decided genetic engineering probably wasn't the thing for me. And, um, <laughs> and I jumped over to, <laughs> I went to the career office and I was like, what do I have credits to graduate in? Cause like, I also had no more money for graduate school or anything else. Right. So right. I was like, what do I have, what do I have credits to graduate in? And yeah. they were like, psychology. I was like, great. <laughs> So, um, so then I, uh, I joined, um, Cigna, which is, uh, 
a health insurance company um, because they had a great program in management training, um, on hand, uh, like hands-on management training. And for the first five years of my career, um, uh, they immediately threw me into being a manager and building teams and, um, you know, and, and managing people. Now, obviously they weren't like high level people, right? They were the people who processed your benefits. Um, but it taught me a lot about managing a business and managing customers. And, um, and then my husband and I decided to move across the country from um, the East Coast to the West Coast and landed ourselves in Seattle. And I um, left insurance because it was not that exciting. And, um, and I joined a company called Aldis, which was desktop publishing. And um, eventually Aldis got bought by Adobe. And, um, and I stayed there for about five years. And I loved software and tech. And, um, and I decided I didn't really want to stay with Adobe because I didn't want to move to San Jose. Um, and so I, you know, took the leap across to the big bad giant across the lake here. Um, and I went to work for Microsoft and it was the best decision I ever made. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, you, what kept you there for so long? Cause that's so, you know, it's really rare anymore when somebody stays at a company that long and retires out of it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. I mean, so <laughs> I did not intend to stay there that long. I had stayed for five years at each of the other companies and I thought, oh, I'll go stay there for another five years. Um, but the thing was that, you know, when I joined Microsoft in 1995, there were 8,000 employees and it was $3 billion in revenue. And for me, that was a huge company. And, right. <laughs> um, and, but for a lot of people, I that's still a huge company. Progressed, right? The, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, as, as I, as I started to, to do things there, um, I, it was amazing the opportunities I got. Like every time I thought, well, maybe it's time to leave. Like some, we, we go into some big business and there would be some challenge to go fix or create or build. And I would just jump into it. And the way that Microsoft worked is it really felt like you were in a different company if you were in a different division. Like they didn't want to yeah, hear about the other division. Um, they worked very independently. Mm -hmm. And it was like, if you had a good idea, you were working for a small startup and you had the best VC in the world because you'd go pitch to the CFO and then you would be able to, you know, get money to start something up. Right. And so that was how I built my career was on doing, um, like kind of startup and turnaround businesses within Microsoft. And I worked, um, in, um, in operations since I started, cause that was kind of the, the history of what I had done, um, and built a few programs, um, globally to, um, kind of at that time we were big on outsourcing, right? So how to, yeah. how to, leverage vendors around the world to do outsourcing in like Singapore and India. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, and then I moved over and I managed our um, certification and training. So built out certification and training for Microsoft. Uh, then I went and um, created 
a knowledge base and a framework for development within our um, consulting services uh, for enterprises. And then I uh, did a whole different change and um, went to do uh, licensing for Microsoft. So um, licensing pricing um, at a time when Microsoft was just moving beyond consumer packaged goods into um enterprise licensing. And so I built that, uh, built that program and um, helped to move our customers, which was super challenging. Um, and then I shifted over to product management uh, for our Windows client business and um, did a, led a number of acquisitions um, and focused on how do we build value around the Windows client. It was the time when we were shifting from XP to Vista and there was no value in the client itself. Um, and so I created something called the Optimized Desktop and focused on instead for the IT Pro on the link between the client and the server. Um, and the value we brought there as opposed to the end user value of the operating system. And, um, and then stayed leading that business from, um, from Vista to Windows 7 to Windows 8. Um, and ironically, the business I was leading for Windows Client when I um, first started around the Vista time was as big as the company was when I started. Right. Um, and yeah. then I moved over um, to lead uh, a small little incubation product called Azure. Um, and Heard so <laughs> we were just starting that up. Um, I mm -hmm. was responsible for all of the um, enterprise and server business. So SQL, Windows, System Center, Windows Server, and um, Azure, and um, helped build Azure from a $10 million incubation kind of uh, product where we didn't really know what we were going to do with it into a billion dollar um, product. And then um, shifted over to rebuild Microsoft's partnerships um, in the cloud and Microsoft's business with partners um, in the cloud. So I did that for about seven years and finally said, I think I'm done. Enough's enough. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really, that's a great story. And I think, you know, what, what I've heard in there, uh, the common denominator among everybody that I've spoken to that has spent that many years with any company, the secret to that is doing many different things, being in a lot of different roles, keeping things interesting, learning, continually learning yep. and getting to do really cool stuff. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, um, you, you retired two years ago and you've gone out to be a solopreneur. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company, what you're up to. And I'd love to hear about after leaving such a mammoth company, um, you know, the, the challenges or shock around being a solopreneur. <laughs> well, so, um, you know, in my, in my journey, what I was like, okay, what do I want to do as my next chapter? And, um, what I really want to do is keep a, toe in the tech industry um, and, uh, you know, keep up with what's going on um, and continually learn new things, but then also um, really focus on making an impact and 
providing the benefit of my experience as a woman in technology um, and helping other women to succeed and to enter the field because it's really imbalanced at the moment. So Gabriella, you sit on several boards. You mentioned you're also uh, a private equity advisor. Tell me a little bit about, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges for women is getting on boards <laughs> where they're paid. I've heard, I've heard women grouse about this for many, many years. How have you gone about doing that? Well, so my journey started about five years before um, I left Microsoft. I had decided that when I left, um, that was what I wanted to do. Kind of, I had kind of set my retirement date and decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I started by taking a class at the University of Washington on being on a board of directors. What did it mean? Um, and it was an amazing class. They had a number of people come in and talk about what you do on a board. Um, they taught you about the different roles that you would have on a board and the different committees. Um, and they even talked about how you would go about getting on a board and had you build a roadmap. And one of the things they said was um, you needed to change your profile, your LinkedIn profile. You needed to network the heck out of it. And sometimes it would take up to five years to get on a board. And so I was like, all right, well, then I should start now. <laughs> so um, I joined an organization called um, the Athena Alliance, which is a, search, a board search firm, but they also help you to um, build a board profile and change your LinkedIn and work on your elevator pitch. And so I did all of that hmm. and, uh, yeah. I just started telling everybody that's what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, all those calls, all those recruiting mm -hmm. calls you get every week for like, are you interested in moving? And I, and I, you know, used to just say, no, thanks. Um, and instead I said, well, I'm not interested in another full-time no, job, yeah, but right. I am interested in being on a board. Right. And they are all the same board search people. Right. <laughs> And so um, I started, I actually started to get um, requests. Now, it, I was in a unique position because the job I had, I worked with CEOs of tech firms all over the world. And, um, and so I knew a lot of people. And when I would tell them that, you know, they, they would share that with each other. And so one of them came back and said, um, we have a very interesting role in China and we are interested in having you sit on the board. And so I had to get permission through Microsoft and they allowed me only to be on one board. And so I had to decide that this was the one. Um, but sitting on a board in China, learning the inside out of, you know, really what is the most up and coming area of the world, um, I thought was really exciting. So I did that. Uh, as a publicly trading company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And um, I learned a lot. Um, and, uh, and certainly the rules are different there, but, um, but I learned a lot. And, um, and then as For I got example. near... Uh, 
Well, for, so for example, I was the only woman on that board. I was the only English speaker. Um, and so right. I had to have, you know, a headset on with translation. Um, I had to be mm-hmm. um, very bold, but within their custom of the way I would interrupt so that I could get some, say something. When we talked about compensation, it was a very different kind of compensation and different conversation about benefits. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, they, you know, it was, it was just, a, I learned a lot about the way that the regulations work in China, the difference between like mainland and Hong Kong, um, the way organizations that are based there had to work when they worked overseas. So it was, it was just a, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I learned a lot of things that I had not learned in the course of doing business before. Um, and, um, and then I also decided through the pandemic that I didn't really want to go back to China. So, um, I, I resigned that board position. (laughs) Um, but, um, but, but but I, I was getting closer to my date of retirement and, um, started um, actually having some conversations with private equity firms. And what I realized through those conversations was that it it would be cooler to sit on a board um, on behalf of a private equity firm than on a public board. Because in a public board position, the executive team, you're kind of at arm's length you are the governance, the oversight, the compliance. They would be happy if they never had to talk to you. Um, when you are sitting on behalf of the private right. equity firm, <laughs> it is a very different thing, right? I was the operating advisor. I was helping the CEO understand. I'm helping the CEO understand the business and the challenges, being the sounding board, um, and and really felt a lot more like the roles that I used to have at Microsoft as an executive rather than like kind of being at this arm's length. And so I've really enjoyed that a lot more. Um, and so I, as a result, I've fostered more relationships with more PE firms and, um, and not only just sit on their boards, but also um, help them as they're evaluating um, other investments that they make. Interesting. Tell me a little bit more, Gabriella, about your allies program. So, um, so I started with um, just doing webinars, um, at just continuing the webinars, actually, that I was already doing when I was working at Microsoft. So while I was at Microsoft, I helped create, um, found an organization called the Women in Technology Network, which helps women who are in technology um, to build community because very often they don't have community within their organizations. Um, and then I also started up uh, an organization called the Women in Cloud, which was a accelerator for women-owned businesses to get into cloud businesses. And while I was at Microsoft, we had we developed a program um, to get those women started on Azure and help them to figure out, like get some certifications and some training and uh, figure out how to get into technology. So um, I continue that work with them um, and, um, and was doing um, webinars and, and different things um, with those organizations. 
Um, and then I decided to write an ebook, take all of my learning and put it into an ebook. So I created an ebook and I published that. Um, and then an organization that um, builds training content um, approached me and asked me if I wanted to turn my ebook into an online interactive training program. And I thought that was a really great way that I could scale my message and my content um, because I can't go do workshops for everybody. Um, and so I, um, I took the time with them and they had some great curriculum developers and we turned my ebook into a um, into an online inter interactive training series that is meant for cohorts of people to go through together. Um, and th so that's now published. And, um, and then uh, most recently, I actually started a podcast um, where I interview people and, um, and we talk about both the intersection of uh, diversity and uh, technology. Yeah, so that's a, that's a good segue to talk about your passion of DEI. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion, just in case anybody on here doesn't uh, know what that is. So um, what has you so passionate about DEI? And, and kind of what is your, how do you approach DEI? So um, there's, there's a couple different things um, that I focus on because it's a broad, broad spectrum and uh, set of topics. Um, one is how do you use technology to enable an organization um, to further their diversity goals? Um, and so how do you create measurements? How do you use analytics, employee analytics? Um, how do you use the tools for better recruiting um, and, um, and, and driving more diverse outcomes through, um, through your recruiting, training, and promotion efforts? Um, and how do you create a better equality in the reward system? And technology can help in all of those ways. And so I've engaged with some um, companies who are building the technology for that. The second part is um, more on a personal empowerment level. Right. So there's systemic and there's personal. And on a personal empowerment level, um, when you are an only, when you uh, feel like you are, you don't fit in to an organization, um, then, you know, what do you do? How do you still um, build your success and, and be successful? And then how do others around you, when they recognize that being the situation, support you? And when I thought about what has helped me over my 30 plus years um, to be successful, the core thing was allies. My ability to ask for help and have people help me to build out my credibility, give me the floor, um, recognize when somebody might be interrupting me, dismissing me. Um, not respecting the position that I had um, or and or people who were willing to give me visible roles so that I could prove my value and, and contribution to the business. And those were all allies 
those were all men who were allies to me through my journey. And so I dissected that and said, what did I do to build those allies? And then what did they do that was helpful? And, um, and I put that together and tried to make it something that was actionable and easy to remember. And essentially, I came out with six actions that you would take to be a better ally. And it is to remember the word allies, A-L-L-I-E-S. Be an advocate, listen, lift up others around you, include them with intention, elevate them, so provide them visibility, and um, sponsor them. And those are really the core six actions that allies take. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. By the way, um, and I think that's that's great that you found a great an acronym that works for that. You know, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, as you said, they it, it was all men. Was it all men because there just weren't any women in more executive roles? Yeah, no. I mean, so Microsoft at that time, there were not women in executive roles. I mean, there was one woman who um, ran our support organization. She was the one woman on our executive team. And um, at about um, maybe seven years into my career, she switched over to run HR for Microsoft. And I was like, man, like (laughs) now now she's in a typical female role. Um, There was actually one woman um, and I who um, later in my career, she was a sales leader at Microsoft. And it was about the time that I was having my second child. And she actually was a great mentor for me. Um, And, um, you know, like I had made the decision with my second child to go part-time so that I could spend more time with my children. And, um, once, uh, I was working outside of my part-time hours and she sent me a note and she was like, what are you doing? (laughs) I was like, I was just responding to email. And she was like, you're not supposed to be working. Get offline. (laughs) Wow. And so, I mean, she was just a really great Mm -hmm. support. Right. And, um, and she was, um, she was an executive at that time. Um, but she didn't stay very long in that role. So I was, um, I was sad, but I have actually kept in touch with her and she's leading several other, she's led several other organizations Mm -hmm. in the industry since then. You know, I don't, I don't want to just pick on Microsoft here, but since you spent so much time there, I mean, and you may be able to talk about other organizations you were with as well. You know, what, one thing I have found and what I love about what you're doing is that I have, uh, you know, men are so great about putting their, you know, putting their hand down to other men and, and lift, helping lift them up, right? Women have not been as good about that. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I think it's like the $64,000 question, right? I've thought thought lots about it. And I I don't know if it's because there's so many fewer jobs for women that it's a lot more cutthroat. Well, I had a claw and scratch to get here, so you should too. (laughs) You know, and I'm kind of curious about your thoughts and if you experienced that yourself anywhere that you worked. 
Well, I can tell you my, my big aha moment, um, about, um, I guess it's about seven years ago, eight years ago now, um, there were some incidents that occurred, um, and, um, they caused a lot of women to start piping up with the challenges that they were facing and, um, the issues they were having at work. And my first reaction to that was to find some of the women that I knew who were kind of, um, joining this thread and, and coach them on things they could do, things they could try. But then I, just got mad. Like I realized like, this is just wrong. Like why are, why are these challenges that I've had for like 30 years? Why do they still happen? Like they shouldn't still be happening. Um, because there are a lot more women here now. And, and I don't understand why there's still so much like headwinds that we face. And, um, so then I thought, well, we should do something about that. Someone should do something. And, um, and then I was like, okay. Um, Ms. High and Mighty, you're a corporate vice president at Microsoft. You should do something about this. <laughs> <laughs> Who better to do it than you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I I realized that um, I had actually just become so numb to a lot of these things, these microaggressions that occurred every single day, that I had just ways that I responded to it or things that I ignored or whatever. And I was being an incredibly bad role model for everybody in my team, everybody that I worked with. Um, and I, I, I actually think that's the case with a lot of women. I think that those, you just get used to bad behavior and, um, and it, you normalize it by, as a result. And so when I started to just say, I'm not going to normalize this, right? I'm going to call everybody out on every single thing that happens, right? And, um, and I'm going to start doing that for everyone around me. And I'm going to notice that not just for the other women, but for everybody who's getting excluded in one way or another from a conversation, from a team, for whatever reason, politics, whatever's going on. Um, and really started to to actively and intentionally be an ally. And what I realized is that you have to actively and intentionally become an ally. It's not something mm -hmm. that will come naturally to most people. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I think in many cases, you have to be active, you have to be intentional, right? I mean, I talk about building cultures of feedback. You can't just, you know, CEO can't just say, okay, here's what we're going to do. This is what it is to be a culture of feedback. And we're starting right now. No, no, that is not going to work. <laughs> you have to be intentional about how to do it. And you have to con continuously set examples of what that looks like. Right. So I, I want you to define a little bit right. further. And you have to have a playbook and you have to have a strategy. Right. And I'd like you to, to talk a little bit more about whether it's to explain, define, when you talk about microaggressions, what does that look like? What did that look like for you? So first, I'll just say a microaggression is an inclusion inhibitor. It's something that happens where um, somebody didn't necessarily do it intentionally, right? That would be an actual aggression. A microaggression is something where um, it was incidental. It was not something they intended um, and they didn't even realize, right? So it's things like uh, interrupting you 
um, when you're speaking. Taking credit for what you just said or your idea, um, ignoring you completely, like not even hearing what you had to say, right? Those are really top three microaggressions that happen to women. Um, and, you know, they all have names now, things like keep eating, right? Um, and so uh, it's helping um, men and other allies understand that there are subtle things that you can do where you give the floor back to the person who was just harmed, right? If I'm interrupted, my ally can say, oh, you know what? Before we move on, Gabriella, can you just finish what you were mm -hmm. saying? As simple as that, right? It doesn't put mm -hmm. blame or shame on anyone else in the room. Uh, it doesn't call anyone out, but it gives me back the power to finish what I was saying. Um, if somebody um, just took credit for my idea and repeated it, um, my ally could say, I love what you're saying, Joe. I think, I think you're building on what Gabriella just said. So why don't we just shift back for a minute? Gabriella, why don't you expand upon that? Why don't you share mm -hmm. a little bit more? Yeah, that's, yeah. Right? So it's about shifting the power in mm -hmm. the room. So what happened when you started calling people out about this? Um, it was wonderful. What, what happened was that um, the people who were um, creating these microaggressions would realize, like, they go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I had just interrupted you. Or, um, it, you know, because they weren't doing it on purpose. They just didn't realize, and they didn't realize the impact it was having on someone else. And, um, and then the other thing is for the people who had been feeling excluded, they, those subtle moments really do a lot to build somebody's confidence. And then when you take that and you start to say, I really liked the way that you framed that question. I really liked the way that you stood up for that presentation. I loved your idea about such and such. When you start to actively go out and help build people up and build their confidence with very specific things that they do well, they flourish. Um, and they then contribute in a whole new way. Um, people that you might have considered um, I don't know, like on the sidelines or shy, it was because they felt outed. They felt like they were excluded. And when you bring them in, the level of their contribution grows. Yeah. It, it's amazing when that happens. And <laughs> that's about all I can say about that. It, it is amazing that when you, when you turn something like that into a positive you know, how that ends up coming back. Right. And to your, to your point about, you know, that people didn't even realize that they had done, done this microaggression. And I, I think that more often than not, that's how things are. I mean, there are people out there who are just, you know, evil, <laughs> You know, that they, they do, they are aware of how they're treating other people. But I think many of us are just, you know, we can all look back at our careers and think, okay, you know what? 
when I was first given my first management um, job, nobody ever trained me, told me how to manage people. Boy, did I find myself getting my butt, you know, butt spanked more times than I can remember. You know, and, and it was often me just not realizing how what I said landed in the world of somebody else. Yeah. I mean, and, and having somebody who recognizes that and notices that, and I mean, it's, it's helpful to you when you've said something or done something and you didn't realize what you just did. Right. Um, like for instance, when people say things, offensive things like, um, well, we should just shoot that project in the head or, um, wow, that person, we should just go lynch them. Right. Like things they don't understand the etymology. They don't understand the history behind these things. And they're so offensive. And so, you know, just interrupting and saying, you may not understand the etymology behind what you just said, but I'm asking you, could you just rephrase what you mean? Like, what, what do you, what's, what's the root of what you're trying to tell us? Right. And then, you know, then they go, oh, I guess I shouldn't have said that. Right. Well, and, and a lot of, I mean, you know, what you're, what we're talking about here is, you know, when I, when I start, when I work with companies around communicating, and this is really what we're talking about is how to communicate more effectively, right? Is to talk to people about that. I listen to what people say, just like I'm sure you do based on what you're, what I'm hearing from you. And, you know, especially if you're in a one-on-one coaching situation, you can talk to somebody about the language that they're using. And how that might land in the world of somebody else, right? And how that might set somebody off. And, you know, people just, you know, think, well, it's just a phrase. Well, maybe to you it is. But not not to, you know, not to the person who had a family member that was lynched, you know, 100 years ago. Right. Or something like that. And I think that one of the things that's really important is that there's a tendency when something happens to wait to talk to somebody about it one-on-one because you feel like maybe that's more respectful. But um, the value is lost in the case of allyship for the person who might have felt offended if you don't say something in the moment. And so it's figuring out how do you say something in the moment that doesn't blame or shame the person, assuming best intent, they didn't say that on purpose, but also recognizes for everyone in the room that that was out of line. So, you know, as we're, as we're coming to the end of the interview, what would you say looking at your business, the you know, business that you're now growing for about the past two years, what would you say are the biggest challenges you're encountering? Um, I would say the big, one of the biggest challenges is the, um, cause that kind of like economic environment, right? Um, it's a tough, tough environment, both for the companies that I'm advising, um, as well as, um, organizations who want to focus and build better, uh, DEI programs. But when they look at all the things and the way that they're spending their money, like training is one of the things just falls off the plate first. Um, and so um, I think that's one, of, it's been one of the toughest things is um, a lot of leaders have uh, looked at like my, um, my training program and they're like, we really want to do this, but maybe not right now. 
Um, and then um, in the on the uh, on the PE side, like PE um, PE investing has slowed down significantly um, because uh, you know the valuations are all off. So um, so it's been a very um, interesting time to be involved in both of those things. So we have all, uh, you know, anybody who hasn't been living underground <laughs> know, has heard about various politicians wanting to kind of ban DEI as a, for whatever their reasons are. I mean, we've all heard about uh, DeSantis and Disney and, you know, there's many other examples. What would you say to those politicians who are anti-DEI for the reason, for really the wrong reasons, to get them to think, to say, "Hey, maybe I need to revisit this because X, Y, Z." Well, so one thing you know, one thing that's um, that I think has happened through a lot of the incidents that um, that happened across the United States um, around um, from you know the police actions that have occurred through a lot of our like re-empowered politicians who um, they are essentially just showcasing their white privilege, right? Like I don't see what's wrong with any of the way things are and nobody, you know, people are all treated fairly and everybody should just be, you know, judged on their own merits and all these things that like just ignoring all the other systemic challenges that we have. And the thing that I, 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 I'm an optimist, so I hope and believe is that all of this has showcased just how bad things really are. And I'm hoping, and I've started to see that there's a lot more grassroots, that there are a lot more um, white people who are starting to understand just how systemic and bad this is um, across the nation and that we do need to take action and that we do need to be more intentional because clearly there are people who are going to hold on to their power with dear life and do anything possible to squelch that voice that would um, enable people to have gay marriages that would, you know, enable people to get to school who wouldn't otherwise be able to go to college, right? We have to all take up arms and, you know, speak out and be, because the, the populace, the general population, um, when you look at all the polls, doesn't agree with a lot of what these, um, all these politicians are saying. Yeah, well, <laughs> minority rule, right? <laughs> it does, right? And it's terrible. Yeah, it really is. Is there anything, Gabriella, that uh, I neglected to ask you about today that you want to talk about? I, I guess what I, what I would say is I would encourage all of your listeners to um, think deeply about the actions mm -hmm. they're taking and to figure out how they can get more involved, how they can make their voices heard, um, how they can be better allies to others. Wonderful. Well, what more, what more do either of us need to say? So, Gabriella Schuster, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, this was a really great conversation, and I'm glad we got to have it. Thank you. You too. 
Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.